for tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, and I know you do, please open them with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to be looking specifically at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. So, let's read these verses together. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. So I got to tell you right now, some of this message is probably going to chap your hide pretty hard tonight. I'm glad some of you are smiling like Lorenzo. I thought about whether or not I should bring a giant industrial-sized vat of Vaseline, you know, just in case it chaps your hide a little bit too hard. But I know people always say, you know, oh, Pastor Jay, I don't like messages like this. That's okay. Buckle up, buttercup. There's a bunch of stuff in, uh, in the world today you know what I don't like. You know what I don't like? I don't like paying taxes. I don't care what anyone says. Matter of fact, I'll level with you. I don't even like the IRS. Uh, I don't like paying insurance to drive my car because I'm a super safe driver and I go out of my way to never hit anybody. And there's all kinds of things I just don't like. I don't like that I have to pay the gas bill in my house. But if I didn't have gas in my house, I wouldn't have heat. I also wouldn't be able to dry my clothing. And I couldn't cook anything because the last time I checked even though the crazy bonkers world we live in now wants to run everything on electric, my stove is still gas. So I guess I have to pay my gas bill too, now don't I? There's a bunch of stuff in life we're going to find that we don't like. That's okay. It doesn't change the reality of said thing. There are all kinds of things in the Bible that kick against us naturally who we are and where we're at. They pull, they push against this sinful nature that, believe it or not, you still do have. You might be redeemed, but don't think your sin nature has been glorified and eradicated yet. If you think that you got some kind of cuckoo crazy, whacked out theology. You are redeemed. You are not glorified. Which means you've been justified in Christ by faith. It means you're being sanctified, right? From the present power of sin. And it means you'll be glorified and you'll be taken away from the presence of sin. None of you are glorified including yours truly. None of us are glorified. We are being sanctified. And that's exactly what this message says. Now, there is a huge emphasis on pleasing God. I would hope that every Christian in here realizes that is something that we should focus upon. Can I get an amen? Good. It's interesting because in this passage, it starts off with finally then which kind of feels like a weird place to start. But finally then, brothers, it's this Greek sentence that is used to provide a sense of urgency to Paul's words. It therefore would create some kind of anticipation on the part of the readers. 
when you're listening, you gotta realize you gotta go back in time. You've gotta go back to the first century when these letters were written and all of the New Testament epistles are written what we would call in Latin ad hoc. I know you don't work that into everyday language, but you should try. It's a great, it's a great Latin phrase. A-D space H-O-C. Ad hoc means in need of. All right? All of the New Testament letters are occasional letters. They're written for a reason. Paul did not need to tell the Romans what he needed to tell the Corinthians, did he? No, because it was, it was a different church. It had different people in it. We are not all cookie cutter Christians, right? Each and every human heart is a little bit different. And every congregation has its own specific flavor. We're talking about a time when there were not churches per city. There was a church per city. A church per city. So Romans was written to the Christians in Rome who were part of that first century church. And it's an ad hoc occasional letter. When churches in the ancient world would receive a letter from an apostle, they read the whole entire thing. That's the most important thing I can impress upon you. We here in modernity take the letters of the apostles of old and we break them down into series. There's nothing wrong with that. We have plenty of examples from early church historians that later pastors in the second and third century started that way before we did. So it's an ancient practice. The first century churches would continue to read through week after week, meditating upon the entire epistle one at a time. This is near the end, right? This is well more than three quarters of the way through 1 Thessalonians. So when Paul gets here, there's this anticipatory design in his wording. Finally then, brothers. Paul is now putting massive emphasis on what he says next, which is why I wanted to take eight whole verses tonight, which I think is a lot for us to do in 40 minutes, but I still think we can. Now, Paul exhorted here his brothers and sisters in Thessaly, that region there where Thessalonica was, to abound more and more. The Christian faith is not only one that grows, it is one that should abound in its growth. Look at everything on the planet that is alive. By nature, something that is alive grows. This is why you have to cut your grass on a regular basis. This is why you have to prune, yes, this is why you have to prune your rose bushes or they get out of control. And if you don't like that, you can call art. Send some guys over. You know, tree branches all bowing down, breaking in through your window, dropping all kinds of extra sap on your roof. You don't need all that stuff. What you need is you need a good tree guy. All things that are alive, again, by principal definition, are growing. Things that are dead are decaying. We are not called in Christ Jesus to have a dead, stagnant, decaying faith. We're called to abound and abound more. It's exactly what Paul said. Abound and abound more. Our growth in Christ Jesus is the thing that gives God great pleasure. Now, again, not to have this offset bonkers theology where people start thinking that, you know, Jesus is walking around in heaven super disappointed in you for all of your failures and how he loves you less today and how he loved you more yesterday is nuts, all right? You were loved with an unconditional everlasting love in Messiah. However, we can bring greater pleasure to the Lord. 
when we're obedient. You know what we can also bring upon ourselves? The chastisement of Father God when we're disobedient. I also know Christians who think there are no repercussions for sin, and you couldn't be any more dead wrong in that assertion. Wrong. Nice try. No. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 12 goes into the depths of it all, that when God does chastise you, it is a living, breathing proof that he loves you and is treating you just like a child. And good parents on planet Earth chastise their children and not give them every cotton-picking thing under the sun because that makes spoiled brats. That doesn't raise godly offspring. Okay? There's a lot of bad parenting today. And I can't wait to talk a little more about it later. That sounded narcissistic, I swear. It did, it, it, I didn't mean for it to come off that way. But I think that the church has gotten itself in a grave situation and a lot of it has to do with bad parenting coupled with garbage theology. It's a major problem we have today. For you know the commands that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul again is stirring up a reminder. He had already been to Thessalonica. He'd already been there. Now he's writing them a letter. So again, this is by way of reminder. Remember about what we talked about? Now I'm reminding you what we talked about. Paul implied here that the things that he was about to write them were, again, not new commandments by any stretch of the imagination. However, they were reminders about things the Thessalonians had already received in person on Paul's first missionary journey. The Thessalonians had already been instructed in gospel truth. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, the truth of the matter is, the Thessalonians needed to move from what I like to call the metaphorical or the intellectual to the practical. You know about it. You know inside. You, you've heard all the things. You've got all the theoretical. But all theoretical and no practical, you live in obscurity. You blur the lines. People walk in sin this way. People get things completely backwards by only living in literally that which is never put into application. You have to take what the word of God says and you have to mentally digest it, right? Everyone talks about, you know, let the word richly dwell in your heart. And everyone knows me knows I'm not a big heart guy. It's okay. It's okay. I'm a big feet guy. You see, you see I'm a big feet guy. That's why I'm wearing sandals. You need to first mentally perceive that which is spoken in the word of God. You take it here. It's called your mind. If you didn't have one, you'd be in bad shape. You have to, that, that which you hear here in your ears, take in, you process by way of your mind, you comprehend, ah, this makes sense. That needs to travel about 18 inches down into your heart. It can never, ever stop there, brothers and sisters. It, makes, it needs to take the longer three and a half foot journey down to your feet where you can walk the truth. You can mentally digest something, hold it dear in your heart, ready, and stop right there forever. And you're stagnant in your walk. If that's where you're at, if you're a heart-only Christian, or if you're more than that, if you're a head and heart Christian, you're stagnant. It's head, heart, hands, and feet. That's what it looks like. Not just knowing the word of God, it's doing things. And I find that there's all kinds of people in the church and it drives me nuts. You got 5,000 doers who don't know what in the world they're talking about and 10,000 thinkers who don't know how to do anything. 
And that's a problem. I hear people, I got a big fight with a guy, brother in our church who I love to death, you know, who was telling about this devotional, wonderful spirituality of this young man he's mentoring. And I said, that's great. You know what's important? I talked to him two days ago. He doesn't know what he's reading. So you can tell me about the depth of his heart and his devotional life and all these other wonderful things. And if you don't know what the word of God means because you're a lousy reader, then guess what? You have a horrible, pathetic understanding of what it says to do, and you do things the wrong way. Awesome, congratulations. You've read the word, and you have no idea what it means. That would be like getting a new washer and dryer in your house, and the only instructions that come with it are in German, and you don't speak German. You're like, I don't know. Uh, maybe we can wash engine parts in this thing. It says it's a washing machine, right? You go outside, you take your 57 Chevy apart, you know, you throw the transmission and the bell housing in there, and you figure that's what it'll do, right? I couldn't read the instructions. Who knows if it can wash engine parts or not? You call it Maytag, and they say, hey, listen, if you wash engine parts, we're going to void your warranty because that is not how it works. If you need an English manual, we'll send you one. Read the word of God slowly. I only have a couple instructions for people. You don't have to be a theologian. I know a bunch of people get all, you know, <laughs> Dr. J's being all intellectual again. No, I'm not. I'm saying when you read this, do two things. First, if you need it, put on glasses so you can see. All right? Super important. And then read it in a well-lit area so that you can see the words really clearly. And then don't power through it really super fast. Read it with some purpose and slow down. If you're wearing your glasses, should you need them, you're in a well-lit area and you're reading slowly, you're probably going to do a lot better than how a lot of other Christians read their Bible. Read it slowly and read it with purpose. All right? Context. The Bible only makes sense when we read it in its context. You can pull any little verse you want out of the context, and it doesn't mean half of what you'd love it to mean. And I know plenty of good-hearted Christians who do it on a regular basis. Stop taking a Bible verse in the middle of the verse and pull it out and say ridiculous things. How many people think Ephesians 4.13 means you never have to prepare in life for anything because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Eh, nice try. That's not what that means. I had friends in seminary who used to be like, dude, I didn't study for the final, but I know, oh, I, know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would go, you're failing. You know way in the world you're getting a good grade on this now. You know, I don't know what your consciousness uh, on cheating, but if you're looking for a good grade, you might want to like go to the professor right now and tell him you're too sick or too stupid to take this exam because you can't whip out, you know, a Bible. You can't whip out Philippians 4.13 and tell me that that's what it means. And I said Ephesians before and I was wrong. It's not what it means. Read what Paul says before that. I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. But I, become in con I have been content in all things. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now the verse means something 10,000 times. Very different than what many Christians think it means. And I know everyone puts it on a bumper sticker and, and people put it on graduation cards. Yay! And it's just always wrong in my book. It's just always wrong. Paul said, I have known what it is to have a full belly. I know what it is to be half starved to death. I know what it is to have great ministry experiences where I go places and there's fruitfulness. And then what else happened to Paul? He was beaten. He was whipped. 
He's shipwrecked. Eventually, he is sent to Rome, and he is beheaded. But you know what he knew? He knew how to be content in Messiah Jesus. For he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. That's what the verse means. Learning to be content in who you are, in who Jesus is. That's what it means. You see, here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Walking in truth is harder than just believing in truth. Mental assent is easy. Oh, yeah, 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 I know what that means. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. thanks. Oh, yeah, thanks, bro. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know that verse. Oh, 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 thanks, thanks, I like that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Does it mean anything if you aren't walking it out? Like, 25 years of pastoral ministry, I'm, I've seen a lot of things at this point, and there's almost nothing anymore that takes me by surprise. I've told many people now, if the next person I encounter's head flips open like a Colgate toothpaste cap and demons shoot out, and break out into fireworks, I'll just go, yeah, okay. It's right. about par for the course. I've seen a lot of other whacked out things. It's finally about time I see that. You pastor a city church, you hear things you thought you would never hear in your whole life. Ever. And no, I don't want to tell any of those stories. But I could. So I want to focus in on our remaining 20, 22 minutes on what I think is the crux of this whole passage. Verses three through eight. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you, and testify, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. You know what your will, you know what God's will is for your life? It's your sanctification. And I know more goofy, immature Christians running around saying, if I can't find God's will for my life, I don't know what my purpose is. Uh you won't find one single Bible verse that says God will give you the liver quiver or the Uji bougies, or you can om on your navel under an oak tree and then somehow a leaf will fall out at the exact moment that you're praying about what you should do. And that is definitely God because he speaks through tree leaves and he's totally gonna tell you it's all gonna be okay because that's crazy. And that's the world we live in today. And it's craziness. And there are crazy hyper-Pentecostal churches that are just in that practice. These are the same Christians who, not knowing how to study the Bible, play Bible bingo. Anyone? Ooh, here's God's will for my right Psalm 59. Kill them not, lest my people forget. That, that couldn't be it. And that's the one I just happened to flip to. I was hoping for something way softer than that. That's not how we study the word of God. We don't play Bible bingo. You don't run your finger up and down the spine. And then say, okay, Holy Spirit, now stop my finger when it's the verse of the day. I need the hour of power. I need it now. I need to get right in here. It's like, no one should read their Bible like that. I know plenty of people who are like, come on, Dr. J, you're such a, you're so, I know people who read their Bible exactly like that. I have friends who are hyper-spiritual. They're like, I prayed today about whether I should wear my blue power socks 
or my red argyles, and then I prayed, should it be pancakes, oh God, or should I have more protein in my diet and do eggs? And Lord, if I have eggs, should it be two? Should it be three? Should I have them over easy, over medium, in an omelet, with cheese, without, bacon bits or not? And I just tell people, for the love of everything holy and sacred, eat something and get out the door and stop. Because that is insanity. It's insane. There's no reason. Do you know what the predominant methodology in the entire Bible, I mean all 66 books, when it comes to decision-making? Do you know how many come down to pray and be led of the Holy Spirit? There is like eight verses in total. And every other one is use wisdom. Which means I think this is cutting edge insanity here, guys. But I think God wants us to use the brains he gave us. It's crazy, I know. I mean, spouting heresy tonight, through and through. But I think it's actually wisdom. Make wise choices. I know many of the choices I made that were really unwise, I'm really sorry about. I can look back on them and go, man, that was painfully unwise. And it crashed and burned very hard. God is really concerned mostly for us in the body of Christ about our character. We've got this crazy notion. He's absolutely all about our comfort. And that's Western Christianity. It's our character, not our comfort. Oh, that's what I want is a soft, squishy, nerf life, Jesus. Try Buddhism or something. I learned that that's not really biblical Christianity. God is more concerned with your character than he is your comfort. And that chaps our hides. I told you a lot of this message would chap your hide 15 minutes ago. It's true. It says here, clear as day, and I am not taking the word of God out of its context, that God's will for your life is your sanctification. This sanctification is not only about our being conformed into the image of Jesus, but it is also about our consecration unto the Lord Jesus. Sanctification, doesn't, it just doesn't mean being made more holy, as some people wrongfully assume. It also means to be set aside for holy things, which is the act of consecration. That's what God wants. He wants holiness in the life of his believers. Because let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, holy people, holy change this world. When you're walking in the light as Christ is in the light, and you're not engaged in every crazy, dark, pagan thing, you stand out, you shine, and you emanate the fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ wants. If you don't believe me, go read Acts 1.8. When the disciples, shortly before the Lord Jesus Christ ascends back to the right hand of the Father, are all excited about eschatology. Lord, is this the time where you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, no. It's not for you to know times and seasons the Father has set. You go preach the gospel. And he wants his church to do the same thing today. And the reason I think we have such a lousy view of sexuality in the American church today is because most parents take this approach. And if your parents took this approach, I'm sorry. Sex is bad. Don't ever do it. Don't kiss a girl. They have cooties. 
and it's all of a sudden, we were 25 in marriage, sex is fantastic. That's garbage. That's garbage theology. None of it's true. It's stupid, actually. You can't inflict negative thoughts in children's mind for 15 or 16 years and then expect them to have a normal sexuality as they bud and mature and start to grow. It's counterproductive, it's counterintuitive, and it's sheer idiotic logic. It's sheer idiotic logic. You know what we do need to teach our children? Sex is awesome. That's what I've taught my children ever since they were old enough to understand and comprehend. And what makes it awesome is that by God's decree and design, it is meant to bind one man and one woman for a lifetime. For a lifetime. And that's what makes it awesome. It is. And we need to start teaching it properly. I think that the American church does a lousy view. And I've heard more youth pastors scare children into thinking, like, sex is this weird, it's, it's hard, oh, it's so bad. And then all of a sudden, there's this one point where it's awesome. It's like, well, when does the caterpillar become a butterfly? <laughs> it's like, is that how it, is that how it rocks? Is that... That doesn't make any sense. Sex is fantastic. It's God's design. It's always been. It always will be. Well, human beings are on this planet. And we need to teach it properly. What makes it awesome is its consecrated nature. That's what makes it awesome. The Lord is constantly conforming us into his very image. This is the whole process of sanctification now thankfully this is something that god is doing for his children now the truth of the matter is you can either get in line with that and you can yield yourself to the work of the holy spirit which is where we're going to wrap this whole message up because it's so germane being the last line of verse eight none of this is possible without the spirit of the living god you can try 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 and fail 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 this is about spirit this is about spiritual empowerment, all right? It's about spiritual empowerment. That's how we have victory. That's how we're conformed. That's how we move. That's how we grow. But this is something that God is doing. Now, you can either, again, yield yourself to the work of the Spirit, or you can kick hard against the goads and put yourself in a state of spiritual arrest. That, brothers and sisters, is up to you. But I beg you, as one of your pastors here, Yield yourself to the grace and work of God's spirit. Philippians 2.12, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I love how Christians love cutting this short. Well, you know what Paul said, work out your own salvation, fear and trembling. Uh, that's actually not what Paul said. You just, I'm pretty sure you didn't go far enough. That's, that's only a partial quoting of the verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do is germane to understand that. So again, that is the biblical pattern. As you yield and say, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Then the Lord says, no problem. Now all both work in you both to will and to do. For whose pleasure does he do it? He does it for his own good pleasure. 
And that doesn't make God some kind of cosmic megalomaniac. It does not. He is the only perfect being in existence. And he is the one who does things for his own glory. Not to mention, it is replete throughout holy writ that God does not share his glory with another. And you want to know why? Because no one else is worthy of his glory. No one. He alone is worthy. He alone. Notice that is that you should abstain from sexual immorality, tied square into God's will for your life. Your sanctification is what? You're setting aside, you're being made holy, your consecration is all about fleeing from sexual immorality. This is not a mere suggestion, brothers and sisters. In the Greek, it is straight up a direct command. It's an imperative. It's an imperative. This isn't like a loose suggestion. Paul's not going, well, I'd really like it if you did this. He's telling you exactly, exactly what God requires. There was obviously something going on in Thessalonica. And we know it's something of a sin nature. And furthermore, we know for a fact it's something probably very perverse, knowing a lot about the Greeks and what they did. Did they have a high view of marriage and sexuality? They did not. They had a view of it. They didn't have a great view of it. Ephesians 5.3 says, marriage really is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. That's the truth of Ephesians 5.3. Therefore, sexual immorality is a thing which should never be mentioned among the body of Christ, which means any Christians. All right? It shouldn't be mentioned. Ephesians 5, 30 through 32 says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And there's something amazing about human sexuality that reigns supreme in all of sexuality on this planet. We are the only mammals on this planet that have the ability to have intercourse face to face. Every other male of every other species mounts a female from behind for procreation. And God has uniquely genetically designed man and woman to go together like lock and key. And when you make love to your wife and she makes love to you, you can stare into each other's eyes. That's called intimacy and lovemaking. And if that makes you feel all giggly inside, then you're not mature enough to handle this. That is, that's the design. And it's a perfect, beautiful design. Because when the two shall become one flesh, just so you know that quotation from Genesis is talking about intercourse. Because when does a man and a woman become one flesh? When they make love. All right, let me tell you something. I'll tell you right now. 23 years of marriage, I did not amalgamate and blend and melt into my wife. Because I know some wacko Christians who think that's what it is, right? Oh, the two shall become one flesh. Oh, yeah, all the time. I melt in there all the time. Blah, blah, blah. So hard to get. Oh, we're melted together again, Lynn. Blah. What in the world are you talking about? Stop with the metaphorical nonsense and the allegory. This is a literal book. The Bible has a literal instruction. Sure, there's some metaphor here and there, and there's some symbolism. But I mean, most of it's really literal. When the plain sense 
makes good sense. Seek no other sense should it lead you to nonsense. When the plain literal sense doesn't make sense, seek another sense. When Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, we know Jesus is in a tree. Okay, we're not stupid. We know who Jesus is. Other things are quite dead literal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should have, you know, should not face the parish but have everlasting life. It's, it's, it's literal. There's nothing allegorical. There's nothing metaphorical about that. Jesus laid his life down. He allowed himself to be taken by his own creation and nailed to an implement of torturous death. All right? Nothing nice about a Roman cross. So heinous was it that Rome said, you can't even crucify Roman citizens. This is why Jesus was crucified and Paul was beheaded. Because Paul was a Roman citizen. Jesus was not. Truly a Galilean was he. It's a horrible thing. Horrible thing. And Jesus allowed himself to be put down and crucified, brutalized, mocked, spat upon for our sanctification. All right? We get so concerned sometimes with two of three phases of salvation. I hear so many Christians overly fixate on justification and then tons focus over on glorification. What about the longest phase in any Christian's life? Sanctification which takes place like a millisecond after you're redeemed. Right after you believe, you enter into the lifelong process of sanctification. Again, brothers and sisters, God is more concerned about our character than he is our comfort. The thing that makes sex so amazing is that it is meant to be that thing that binds a man into a wife and a wife back unto her husband. And it sounds really mean what I'm going to say next, but I want you to hear it because it's the God's honest truth. So many of you are pretty, but none of you are attractive. To me. Because there's only one girl who has my heart. And none of you are it. You know, the truth of the matter is, that's just it. When a man saves himself for marriage and marries a woman who has saved herself, I want you to... I want you to hear something that my father told me when I was 10, and it was darn good advice from my dad. Always wait. Because when you wait for the right one, and God confirms it to you, and other mentors in your life assure you, there'll be no one else like her, son. No one else. And when we jump around, and we go on every wild sexual escapade and everything else, all you're doing is defrauding yourself and everyone else around you. It's so serious. I don't know how to explain any more is that you'll always have this weird comparative thing going on. And, it, and God, as father, he knows best. He knows that he doesn't want us to do those things. And that's a childish and non-manly idea in the Western Civ. Oh, you wouldn't buy a pair of boots without trying them on, would you, Dr. J? Yes, I would. It's called Amazon. I'm a size 10. Comes in, doesn't fit, goes back. Yeah, stupid analogy. It doesn't play with me. I don't get it. Keep going. Your analogy is sad. 
You wouldn't buy a car without test driving it, would you? Yeah, you would. It's called Carvana. They bring it right in. They tell you if you don't like it in seven days, we'll come back and get it. No, that's, that's not how it goes. It doesn't go that way. It's meant to be something that binds a husband and a wife together. It is a sacred and holy thing. And when you think about it, there's things you do with your spouse you don't do with anyone else. And that's why the marriage bed is called sacred. That's why. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The writer of Hebrews comes down hard on that. There's nothing fluffy in there. There's nothing to make you feel good. That's the truth, and that's what he says. And I'll tell you, I'll show you how universal this application is. Go all the way back to Genesis, when Abraham and Sarai are going into Egypt, and he takes a look at her and says, I just want you to know, they'll kill me to get you. So tell them you're my sister. Now, this is what you need to know about the ancient Egyptians. And if you find yourself part of that lineage, be proud of your people, at least on this one. The Egyptians held marriage even 5,000 years ago. So honorable, if your wife was a hottie, they'd just kill you to get her. I remember reading that in a book and going, wow, that is sick and twisted and awesome in some way. It's just like, oh, look at this. This is wonderful. We honor marriage. Quick, kill that guy, his wife. She's breathtaking. I have to, she's got to be in my harem. Abraham knew that. He knew flat out. Yeah, the Egyptians, they're, they're down with marriage. And, and they're so down with marriage that they'll kill you. So that they're not, you know, doing something improprietary with your bride. Kind of whacked out. But it's still true of that ancient culture. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This is strong. Just buckle up and hear both of these passages back to back because they're intertwined. Paul said, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of, God, of the brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Why do you think Paul came down so strong on anyone who names themselves a brother and is yet trapped somehow in a sexually immoral lifestyle? Why does Paul say, don't even have fellowship with someone like that? You ever think, you ever ponder hard on that? I want you to. It's important. The context is in the exact same book. For this is the exact same book where Paul said, know this, bad company corrupts good morals. You start hanging out with sexually immoral people, and you know what? The truth of the matter is, I can just about guarantee you, Jesus doesn't rub off on them. Their lifestyle will probably rub off onto you. That's why. Down, one more chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Paul pleads here now with the Corinthian Christians. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God wants us to glorify him in our bodies, which thanks to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, your body now is very real, a temple far greater than any tabernacle in the wilderness, far greater than the first or second temple, or even a third to come, far greater than that, for it's not built with human hands. God is the builder, far greater than that. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. I'm not trying to shame anyone here tonight, and if you're feeling shame, don't get up and walk out in anger. Just let me get where I'm going to. This is just the reality of strong messages. They're strong on purpose. This is what the word of God says. We cannot dictate unto the Bible what it teaches. Amen? For the word of God dictates us to us how we should be conformed. Possess your own vessel. That's thrown more than a few people for a loop. All around the Thessalonians and that culture. Now, please listen, it's germane. We're pagans who had combined sex and religion into one practice. Temple, temple cults were filled with prostitutes, male and female. Don't you think for a second, ladies, that it was just like perverse men in that region of Greece. There were cult prostitutes, male and female, hetero and, homo and homosexual. Just so you know, all intertwined into a bizarre religious practice. Bizarre. You paid temple taxes, and as a payment for that, you could commit lewd and crude acts with temple prostitutes. It was all intertwined. And Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, don't let this corrupt culture permeate your thinking. And I know Christians think, whoa, the world never influences me. Bupkis. Yes, it does. Yes, when Christians let their guard down, the world infiltrates our hearts and minds. We, we, we can have the propensity to let this world start conforming us and transforming us. And the idea is that we don't do that. Don't, don't let the culture influence you. Rather in Christ, I pray you influence culture. But it's easy. It can go either way. Paul says that they, they are to live a life that shows that the gospel has changed them. That's what we should be doing through the act of sanctification. We don't get together comparatively and say, hey, how sanctified were you this week? Well, I'm a little sanctified, and uh, last week was really great. And uh, how about you? Well, I'm more sanctified than you, so I'm probably having a better week. It's, it, that's not it. We, that's not it. That's spiritual pride. That's a whole different problem. We should live in a manner that shows the gospel has changed us. That's why Paul says, walk circumspectively. Why? Because the world around you is watching. So walk in a way that honors Christ. That shows that the gospel really has transformed you from the inside out. And unfortunately, the loose living that we find among some believers today brings the gospel into disrepute and disgrace. And people say things like, well, there's just as much porn addiction in the church today as there is in the world. There's just as much divorce in the church as there is today in the world. There's just as much loose dating and, you know, flippant sexual behaviors. And I say to this generation, you guys, stop that. 
Please, my generation has been miserable at it. I'm begging you, stop it. And I'm not yelling at you like, stop doing that. What I'm saying is I'm encouraging you, please stop that statistic. Because it's painful. It's painful. It says that sexual immorality should not even be made mentioned among the saints. All the way back to Ephesians 5. It says it shouldn't be, there should be no mention of it. Because again, what does it do? It's like this criminal act. It defrauds other people. And every other sin you do is outside of your body, but sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Because it's that consecrated, it's that holy, it's that sacred. And what's a God today that young people would actually get that? I know so many Gen Z Christians who have such a absolute horrific view of sensuality and sexuality. It's a a train wreck. It, It breaks me. When I pray, when I meditate upon it, when I set time aside, I am broken over how broken this generation is under us. And the insane things being shoved into their little hearts and minds, attacks from everywhere. And what should we do? Stick our heads in the sand and wait for the rapture and or the return of Christ? No. I think the church has done that for for far too long. I think the other thing we need to do is fight. And I do mean that. And there's all kinds of ways to fight. I ain't telling you to go get a gun and get insane. I didn't say that. I didn't say violent. I said fight. There's all kinds of ways to fight without violence. Don't stand for it. Don't nod the head. Don't shrug your shoulders. And don't just go, well, you know, that's it. Don't do that. Do something else. All right? Horrific and terrible philosophy is out there. And C.S. Lewis said, we need to teach good and godly philosophy if for no other reason, just to answer the garbage that's out there already. Because that's already being taught and permeating little hearts and minds. And I'm going to tell you right now, I pray that you join me in prayer because I tremble for people when they stand before Jesus Christ for the nonsensical things they do. Jesus said, it'd be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than you should destroy the faith of one of these little ones in me. And everyone's like, oh, so that's their judgment? No, Jesus said that'd be better. He didn't say that was the judgment. The judgment is eternal damnation and fire. No, it's way worse. Stop being blown away when non-believers act like non-believers. That's my first word of admonition to people. I, am t- I hear one more pastor say it, I am just going to pop. And I am going to lose it. And I can really hold on for a long time before I snap. I don't get bent out of shape when pagans who do not know Jesus Christ, who are not regenerated by the Holy Ghost, act like pagans. That doesn't floor me. You know what floors me? When Christians act like that. That's what floors me. Is when Christians act like it. What's their excuse? What's their excuse? They don't know God. That's their excuse. They're dead. Dead men walking. That's what they are. And the church, we're the church militant. We're redeemed. We're alive. We're filled with God's spirit. Wisdom and knowledge. I don't go, when the world acts pagan, I'm not floored. Yeah, of course. Hello, it's the world. But we can't just have this holy huddle mentality. We four and no more. 
evangelism. Evangelism is something that really, I think, is strongly lacking in the church today. Strongly lacking. Please pray for some more evangelists to get out there and be bold because it's the gospel that changes. Not political ideology, not your next favorite governor, not your next favorite presidential candidate. Let me tell you, there's no such thing as a political solution. Stop. It's not. There's no such thing. There's no, no man-centered hope here other than the man Christ Jesus. What does it mean to possess your own vessel? Well, simply this. It's a metaphor for controlling one's own body. Okay? That's what it means to possess your own vessel. You are a vessel. All right? You are. And it's the truth. Either you're, you're either an empty vessel or a full vessel. It's one or the other. But that's what you are. So the metaphor, again, simply means control your own body. And guess what, brothers and sisters? You can all control yourselves. Pagans, to a degree, can even control themselves. How much more should the church of Jesus Christ? You see, you can't serve God and live in sin. Okay? Real freedom doesn't work that way. That's not real freedom. You know what that's called? That's called bondage. Bondage is the opposite of freedom. And by the way, the last time I checked, none of you are an alley cat. Okay? Hmm, isn't he cute? None of you are that, are you? Okay, good. Because cats and dogs and puppies and monkeys and giraffes and zebras and everything else on the planet outside of human beings don't have the power of contrary choice, all right? They move on instinct. It's an instinctual thing for cats to breed. That's what they do. And you are not an alley cat. None of you are. Not any single one of you. So, okay, so don't ever catch any of you men acting like it, because I will break you. And Chris, he's got a way better slogan than me. He just says, dial 811. And none of you know what that means, and I'm so glad. Because that's the number you call before you dig a hole on your property. I'll just let that hang there for a second. I didn't say I was going to bury you. I just, I'll just, I said I'd break you. So I got a whole successful plan for women. I usually only instruct women in this when no men around, but I always tell them if you got a young man in the body of Christ who's being uh, a little boy with you, because that's what little boys do, try to take advantage and defraud their sisters in Christ. Hey, just so you know right now, she's your sister in Christ before she's ever your bride. Okay? My wife is my sister in Christ. To this day, she was my sister before I put a ring on it and committed, and she will be my sister in eternity forever. I have an enjoyable brief period where she is my beloved bride. She'll always be my sister. Men, I hold you highly guilty because I know more often than not, it's usually men who put the undue pressure. I always tell ladies, when men put undue pressure on you, say, close your eyes, sweetie pie. I got a surprise for you. It's going to be a big surprise. So close your eyes. And then, because he's stupid and led by his own retarded passions, take your shoe off, put your hand in it, 
swing it around your head as hard as you can on his right eye. So when he walks in with a black eye, the elders and pastors in our church will know who needs special discipleship. And if anyone says, Pastor Jay said, do something violent like that, Lloyd's already got my back. He loves the analogy. Hey guys, hear me hard on this one. Stop being little boys. And for the love of everything holy and sacred, become men. No girl out there grows into womanhood and wants a little boy for a husband, all right? Most godly women I know want godly men. Ladies, amen? Guys, knock it off, all right? Just knock it off. Stop being little boys. That's what little boys do. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of little boys running around in the church today. And what we need, in all honesty, is a lot more of what I like to call tender warriors. Learn how to be a tender warrior. That's a man who is ready to fight, but at the same time is gentle and peaceable and knows that fighting is for defense and not an offense. But boys, if any be here tonight, stop being boys and start acting like men. First John 3, 4 through 10 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins and in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And that includes not defrauding other men. And no one wants to hit on that. No one wants to talk about it. But when you fulfill your perverted, gross sexual fantasies, what someone who breaks up with you eventually and then marries another man, you, my friend, are guilty of defrauding that man of something that was never yours to have, ever. And yes, I'm that strong on that position. Yes. Have some people have premarital sex in here? Yes. Should you walk around field condemned for the rest of your life? Never. Should you walk out of here upset and bent out of shape with yourself? No. Should you stop from it if it's an active practice? Yes. Yes. Stop. Please stop. Because we need to start treating each other again like brothers and sisters. Because the last time I checked, we are going to spend eternity forever. We are a forever family. And it would be way better to get that right now so that eternity is even more enjoyable. John 15, one through five, Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I know there's so much confusion about this verse that I don't have time to talk about. But the word there, takes away, is the Greek word ero, which doesn't just mean cut off or throw away or take away. It also means lift up or pick up. And I think this is one of the many places where a lot of English translations are dead wrong. Because in an agrarian society that grew its own food, when you have a branch that is not bearing fruit, you don't cut it off. It's a bad practice. Hey, how's your tree going there? I don't know. I've cut off about 75% of the branches. It's starting to look really dead. It's not what you do. My tomato plants do this every spring. Some branches fall down and hit the ground where vermin and ants and chipmunks start gnawing on it and they need to be tied up with twine. It's called picking up a branch. It's an ancient farming practice, maybe three, 4,000 years old. But that's what you do because in contrast, branches that are bearing fruit, the vine dresser who is all almighty God, God the Father, he prunes those so that those that bear, bear even more. The analogy doesn't work the other way. I lop all these off, but I prune these. The analogy, it doesn't cut the mustard. Exegetically speaking, it's bad. When Jesus healed the paralytic man, he told him to take up his bed and go home, and it's the word arrow. And he didn't tell the man, break your bed, burn your bread, chop it all up into pieces. He didn't say any of those things. All right? Pick it up, which means take it into your hands and go home. Lift it up. This is what the Lord Jesus wants to do in all of us. What does he want? He wants fruitfulness. What's the title of the message? Abounding more and more. Which is all Chris and I want for you as your leaders here, as do all the other leaders. We don't want you guys to just survive. We want you guys to thrive in your Christianity. Plenty of people are just surviving today. I don't want to see any of you survive. I want to see you thriving. And the only way you can do that is by abiding in Yeshua. It's only by being in the vine. It's only by being in Christ. And when Christians do not abide in Christ, that is when you sin, 100%. When you are not abiding, you're not thinking straight. Your heart's not set on Jesus. You're not, you're not in that place. You're somewhere else. Abide in Christ. For apart from him, you can do no good thing. Nothing. So, Paul goes on and says, God didn't call us to uncleanliness. Ergo, sanctification is part of a Christian's calling. It just is. The call of God comes to us in the form of the gospel. And those who receive that gospel are the called. Therefore, they're in turn called to be Holy, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And not just called for uncleanliness. No, God doesn't call us to that. Whoever hears God's call to salvation also hears the call to a life of holiness. And again, when Christians live in open, wanton sin, they are in a very real way making a mockery of what Jesus did for those whom he called out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. We are. We can very metaphorically spit in Jesus' face. It's very easy to do. People did it when he was on the cross on Calvary, and they did it in a real way. What's a God that Christians would never do it? 
in a metaphorical way. Never. So what do we do? How can we get it right after we've been so incredibly wrong? Is that just a vague possibility? No, it's not a vague possibility. It's very, very possible. First John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Brothers and sisters, this absolutely means the guilt that comes with a lot of sexual sin as well. And this is how we get it right after we've been so wrong. And it's to realize that we have a God who is an amazing, redemptive God of second chances and second second chances and third second chances and fourth second chances. Should I keep going or do you get how I'm trying to be obnoxious on purpose? That's who he is. That's what a God of grace does. Now, that doesn't give you a license to sin. Oh, good, I'll just be all flippant with, you know, my sanctification. That's, that's not what it's there for. God's grace is not a license to sin. Should we sin that grace may abound? Paul asks. God forbid, may it never be. Lots of different English translations, and they're all saying the same thing very, very negatively. And that's no, no. We don't sin so that God's grace may abound. We know that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do sin, there is forgiveness for us should we confess. And I gotta tell you, the only beautiful thing about it is God doesn't make us crawl around on our knees, hitting ourselves on the back with a cat of nine tails and chips of bone and metal in them and all these other ridiculous things. He doesn't do those things. You know what the restoration process looks like? Almighty God, I've fallen short again. Forgive me. Forgiven. I don't know why Christians let it linger. Why to let it linger? Don't let sin have power in your lives. When you mess up, when you sin, when you blow it, confess. It's part of repentance. It's a military terminology as much as it means changing your mind. That's not just what metanoia means in Greek. It doesn't just mean change your thinking. It means change your direction. Which means if you're marching east and you metanoia, you spin 180 degrees of the 360. Not spinning in a circle, spinning in half a circle. And you go from the western direction to an eastern direction. And if you're marching in towards sin and you repent and confess, now you march away from sin, no longer towards it. And yes, that sounds simplistic because guess what? Don't add layers to it. There's nothing complicated about how God forgives us. Nothing. Nothing less than the death of his only son. So, how is it possible to abstain from sin? Well, Paul tells us in verse 8 that he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So if you don't like what this message says, and you want to rate me a big old hate email later, that's cool. You're just rejecting exactly what the scripture says, which means you don't have a problem with anything man has ever written. 
Paul tells you now, 2,000 years removed, your biggest problem is with the Spirit. This is what the Spirit says. Romans 8, 13 through 15 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that Aramaic word, Abba, juxtaposed to the Greek word, Patar. Patar means father. The man who, who you are half genetically related to. The man who married your mother is your father. But the closest equivalent in English to Abba is daddy. And that is a term of dependency with childlike trust. I didn't say childish. I said childlike. And if you've ever seen a child in the mall bereft of their parent by way of getting lost, you see the sheer look of panic until they find the hand again of mommy or daddy. You ever see that? It's one of the most tender things you'll ever see in your human earthly life. Father God wants us to trust him like that. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul reminds us that our very bodies have again become the Holy Spirit's temple. So honor God with your sexuality. You see, God's will is quite simple. You can run amok, you can run around, you can look for all these different Bible verses to front load, take out of context, shove into your personal favorite verse, your life verse or whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. I've been a Christian a very long time. That's my life verse. Sweet. I'm sure it was like 10,000 other Christians' life verse before you claimed it. I don't know why I really don't know what that means. I'm going to sound nutty. Um, I like all of them. You won't find it. What is God's will for your life? There's a couple of different places in the scriptures that all say the same thing. It's your being conformed more into the image of Christ. It is your sanctification. That's God's will. And if he calls you to something miraculous and amazing and spectacular, don't worry. The God who has created the universe will get you the message. Don't you worry. You'll be, you're all going to be okay. How do I know? Because we all have the same daddy. You're all going to be okay. When we choose to commit sexual sin, we basically defraud people and we openly mock Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Lord who died that we would live. For he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. So let's always be mindful that Christ has freed us and we are no longer in bondage until you choose to put yourself right back there. For in John 8, Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And yet Christ also said, whoever he freed was free indeed. You see, last but certainly not least, let's reiterate, God has given us the Holy Spirit. We are free indeed. But at the same time, we must also simply abide in Christ. For apart from Christ, we can do no good thing.
Let's pray. Father God, Lord, this word is, it's strong. We're, we're ever so close to the next passage that says the, the word of God is alive and active if we would just move to another chapter four of the Bible. If we move from 1 Thessalonians 4 to, to Hebrews 4, we would know how sharp and alive the word of God is. And it's not the word that we think of, it's scalpel in Hebrews 4.12, which means an implement for doing fine surgical work. And that's what every human heart needs, Lord, because we're all different. None of us are exactly the same. We're all a little different. Every human heart knows its own sorrow, knows its own shame, knows its own pride. And Lord, you forgive all those who confess and come to you. For if we confess our faults, you are faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. That we are so thankful for, O oh God. And furthermore, you have given us your spirit, which means we're not orphans, just as you promised to not leave us as such. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that we would take a very radically different look at sensuality, sexuality, and sanctification, Lord. And for all of us with bad thinking or bad past, you are the God of redemption. You are the God who is radically pro-human, who bears long with us. We're so thankful of that, oh God. Lead us and guide us into your truth and all righteousness. We ask this and more in the name of Messiah Jesus, and in one accord, all of God's family said, amen. Only.